This is The Podlight, a podcast by San Jose Spotlight dedicated to independent political and business reporting. I'm your host, Editor Nick Preciado. Last year, a 23-member commission undertook a monumental task of recommending changes to San Jose's city rules. The Charter Review Commission proposed numerous changes to city laws, such as expanding the number of city council seats and changing how voting works in local elections. The San Jose City Council is considering these recommendations and could put the final decision in the hands of voters later this year. Joining me now to talk about this are three members of the Charter Review Commission, Commissioners Christina Johnson, Pui Tran, and Chairman Fred Ferrer. Christina Johnson served as chair and vice chair of the Governance Subcommittee. She's a stay-at-home mother and community advocate who serves on the board of the Vietnamese American Roundtable. Pui Tran led the Voting and Elections Subcommittee. He's a partner with Justice at Work Law Group and also serves on the board of the Vietnamese American Roundtable, in addition to being a member of the San Jose Housing and Community Development Commission. Fred Ferrer served as chair of the Charter Review Commission. He's also the CEO of Child Advocates of Silicon Valley, which works with youth in the foster care system and operates the county's court-appointed special advocates program, also known as CASA. Welcome to the program. Getting into these questions now, one of the biggest recommendations made by the Charter Review Commission is a switch to ranked choice voting, which allows residents to select their first, second, and third choices for elected officials. If the first choice is eliminated, their vote shifts to the second choice and so on and so on until a single candidate garners a majority of votes. There are about four Bay Area cities that are already doing this, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, and San Leandro. So I guess the question I have for you is how would the switch to ranked choice voting impact San Jose? Sure. I'd be, um, I could take uh, um, the first crack at this one since I, I led the Votings and Elections Subcommittee, and this is one of our recommendations. Uh, you know, currently, uh, most traditional elections occur over two cycles. It occurs over the primary election, and then it occurs over the general election. What that means is that we have an extended campaign period that can run, I mean, at a minimum six months, but for, uh, for certain folks, it can run out to a year, maybe a year and a half. Uh, this immense amount of time means that we ha- candidates have to put in a lot of money and a lot of time to uh, to put themselves to make themselves available and to get to know voters and for voters to get to know them. Um, rank- with ranked choice voting, we're hoping to consolidate those processes. Rather than having two cycles, we have one. Right, all of the uh, candidates can go out there and campaign to present themselves at the same time, uh, and giving people the option to rank the candidates that they like means that. They can vote without feeling like they have to choose the lesser of just two evils. It means that um, vote when the, the during the election when most voters turn out, which is the general election in November, uh, they get to see all the folks who put themselves out there uh, with their vision for the city or uh, to to uh, with the vision that they want to try to enact for the city, and then make a choice out of those options. But even if you vote for somebody who doesn't ultimately prevail, you've had multiple opportunities to say, hey, I like these other candidates as well. Uh, and even if your first choice didn't make it through, um, you, you, uh, you have uh, stronger odds of your second choice, your third choice uh, coming through. So that at the end of the day, whoever ultimately does get elected through this system, they are, represent, they are, they are representing a broader reach of the community and the voter base. How will it impact candidates seeking elected office? And could it help bring more diverse candidates to participate? Well, absolutely. By shortening the election period, we are lowering those barriers in terms of time and cost. You know, one of the people that I spoke to when we were doing our research and due diligence on ranked choice voting was a a candidate uh, out of San Francisco who ran for supervisor there. Her name was Jessica Ho. And she was very frank in her assessment that if uh, ranked choice voting was not in place in San Francisco, she wouldn't have run in the first place because it would have been way too much of a commitment for people who have jobs, who have families, Right. Uh, 
being able to create a shorter campaign period uh, means that you don't have to make the decision that you're going to suspend your life for, you know, for elongated amounts of time that can be quite disruptful, to be blunt. What do opponents of ranked choice voting say? What are its downsides? Well, interestingly enough, uh, opponents of ranked choice voting have tried to argue that it's undemocratic, uh, that the ultimate candidate who comes out uh, or who may prevail may not be the candidate who got the most number of first place or first preference votes. Uh, We actually had to address this argument during the charter review process as well. And ultimately, for uh, I know for me and for some of, of the other members of the commission, um, you know, the point that it, the, that uh, had to be made was even if a candidate did not get the most number of first choice votes, they still got the most number of votes, right? Just because uh, the the uh, the candidate got the most first choice votes, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the most preferred candidate, right? Ultimately, if uh, the the, num- the higher number of voters just didn't choose them at all as a preference or chose them as a last preference, then the candidate who prevails still is reflecting the will of the voters who participated and showed and made their decision through ranked choice voting. Yeah, another argument I heard was that voters were going to have a difficult choice ranking the candidates, um, you know, instead of just selecting one candidate. And I, I, I feel like we need to trust people to, to be able to, to do that because it's not hard. You know, a lot of the opponents are making it seem like it's really hard, but you can ask people to rate their like favorite fruit and they're able to do it. So it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Right. And so I, I feel like, like ranked choice voting is the right path forward for San Jose. And I think we're ready for it. And, you know, I believe in our constituents that they'll be able to understand it. I would just add one thing. And that is that, um, if you look at it from a perspective of inclusivity, uh, a candidate can't just play to their base, trying to get enough votes to get into the primary and then play to their base and in opposition to the other candidate in the general election. Instead, they have to be much more inclusive and not only play to their base, but go out to get those second choice or third choice rankings so that you change the tenor of the of the election so that I kind of don't want anyone to be opposed to me as much as I want some people to be really supportive of me. And then at least uh, other people might, you know, increase my rank. I think those are other ways that we could see our community becoming more inclusive and the tenor of the, of the tone, the tenor and tone of the campaign be much more thoughtful around issues and the similarities and the actions that you want to take as a candidate, as opposed to, just being in opposition to others and really just just firing up your base in opposition to somebody who might be your potential opponent. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, I think you really hit on something there, Fred, uh, with the tone. Uh, these last few election cycles, I think we've seen things get more intense. There's been more fighting, uh, not just locally, but at the national level, which I think is more common than locally, but now it's at the local level. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking that maybe this could be a way to ease the tone of this election season to begin with, r- rather than there just being one candidate and, and a voter says, you know, this is my guy, he needs to win. That, that's very different than, you know, I have a handful of candidates that I'd like to see win. Now, another major recommendation um, that the Charter Review Commission made is to expand the number of council seats in the city from 10 to 14. Uh, it's also another way of looking at it is expanding council districts. Uh, the city's had 10 districts since the late 1970s, even though the population has increased to more than a million people in that time. Why did the commission feel it's necessary to increase the number of council seats? 
Sure. Actually, uh, I think the point that you just brought up was a big impetus behind why the commission recommended expanding the council uh, and expanding the number of council districts. Um, now, I will say that there was, uh, I think, some a lot of discussion around how much expansion there should be. Right. Uh, I think there were folks who thought maybe we should uh, take it slow and, uh, you know, and maybe just maybe engage in some study before we start picking numbers. But then there were other folks who I thought, who thought, hey, look, I mean, the one thing that we know for sure is that from the late 70s, when the, the, the 10 districts were first initiated, our population has almost doubled, right? I mean, we're talking about a 70% increase in population, if I remember correctly. Uh, and right now, every council member has to be responsible for a lot of residents and many, or many residents who just don't feel heard or they don't feel that they are actually represented in, uh, in, in the, in, based on the number of seats and districts that currently exist. Um, I think what we're uh, want to do is uh, make sure that we do acknowledge our growth. Uh, we create uh, more opportunities. We create the number of districts there are so that we can allow elected representatives to be closer to their residents, right? I mean, the comparison that was made during our discussions was look at a classroom. A teacher who can work with 30 students, right, is going to be uh, more effective than a teacher who has to work with closer to 50 or 60 students. Will having more council members on the dais every Tuesday make it harder to reach consensus and make decisions? Well, uh, I mean, uh, (laughs) if you look at what the council that we have now, I don't know if consensus is a normal thing for us, right? And I'm not trying to say that in a way that like derides the work of the council. It's 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 tough work, right? Um, Generally speaking, though, I follow the maxim of, you know, the more people you get involved in a decision, the longer it may take, but more often it's going to be the best decision, right? Whereas... If you have less people, you can make decisions faster, but maybe the decision that comes out of it isn't necessarily going to be the best. I think it's going to encourage more collaboration, or at least that's my personal belief, um, that, you know, council members would be more encouraged to work together to solve issues in our city. I also think you could add that I don't think it makes it harder. I think it just changes it. It's a different dynamic, and therefore collaboration might be different consensus building is going to be different. You can't have one block against another because you'd have kind of too many people. So now you may have three different divergent ideas that are coming together. And I think that that kind of healthy debate is really helpful. When you have just two, then who's missing? And if you don't enlarge the circle of who's being represented and what their interests really are, then decisions can get made more expediently perhaps but also they could be just as political. But I feel like the greater the conversation happens, the greater the chances that more positions and perspectives are included and therefore become more representative in terms of what is our whole community want rather than just maybe two factions of our community. And so anything that I think the commission looked at was how do we get greater inclusivity? How do we really look at equity in a different way and what kinds of issues of justice come up when you have limited or less than collaborative or less than expansive representation? Um, how do we move to a greater sense of justice with more folks included rather than less? So we could have one person making all the decisions, very efficient system, uh, but we see how that doesn't really work. And so getting a greater number, as I say, it doesn't make it harder, it just changes it. And I think in some ways, sometimes it could be messier but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a, a bad decision. In fact, as I as we just said, I think it can make a much more inclusive 
decision, which really in the long run is what we're looking for in our governance. Now, another recommendation being proposed is to keep the city's current council manager system. Uh, I'm going to try not to get too technical and in the weeds here because it can get a little dry. Essentially, the system that exists now, this council manager system, is where the city manager has executive power to direct staff and department heads. Uh, This is in contrast to what's known as a strong mayor system, which Mayor Sam Licardo proposed at one point. Uh, A strong mayor system would give the city's top elected official the ability to hire and fire department heads, something Licardo currently can't do. Why did the commission vote to recommend a council manager system over giving the mayor more power? The commission voted for this, and I think it's been touched upon uh, in multiple times throughout the other question, to maintain accountability, representation, and inclusion. Um, moving to a mayor council format would dilute the overall power um, of the representation of communities and, and siphon the shared collective power to one person, which is the mayor. Um, the council manager format would serve as, it serves as a check and balance system right now. Um, and the other issue was if the mayor has the authority to hire and fire the other city officials outside of the mayor system, it could be perceived as due to political connections or favors instead of hiring someone qualified or trained um, to be department heads. So that was one of the concerns that the commission had and um, that was addressed in, in trying to keep the current governance structure. I think that this will be a healthy debate at council. Um, But it's a challenging debate because it's council with 10 members and a mayor with one person. And so I don't know that the change is ever going to come from the council itself where they'd say, yes, we want a different form of governance. Um, But the commission was, I thought, incredibly thoughtful and did a lot of research. We looked at other cities. San Diego coming to mind is a good example where San Diego has a mayoral structure, San Francisco similarly. I do think it was a, it, a very thoughtful debate that we had, and the commission did vote overwhelmingly to support kind of the current system. I think time will tell as the city changes, as the, the, the city continues to grow and enlarge, is it the most effective or efficient system? I think that's always going to be a question that, that the council and the mayor's office needs to wrestle with. And I do think that there's going to be lots of ways in which these things will take a life of their own in some ways um, as we move forward. Um, with the budget being the challenge of the day, you know, usually with retirement systems, with there's, there's so many things that the city COVID response, lots of things that the city's gonna have to deal with. Um, the challenge I think is gonna be remain no matter which system you really went to. I think the other thing that the community said very loud and clear to us was this notion of accountability is really important. And they use the example of the flood and who's responsible. Um, the challenge comes that the people think, the general public thinks that the mayor is responsible for things, that the mayor actually has no authority in our current charter system. And so I think that will remain a challenge that we just got to continue to think through. So at, Co- at COVID's a good example where, you know, the mayor was really the person that people blamed uh, for different things. Um, and the, you know, lots of things in terms of responsibility and accountability, and it becomes easier when it's a when it's a group of people that are responsible. Um, but I do think this is going to be a question that no matter where the council comes down, and ultimately the voters, I think this is a question that's going to continue to be one that we need to wrestle with. Yeah, actually, and in, in you know the 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 general question of whether we go from council manager to uh, mayor council system. 
um, really kind of played out in two specific considerations, right? Uh, one was whether to uh, ex- give the mayor emergency powers only. So if we're talking about an expansion of powers, it would only be for emergency uh, situations. And then the second was actually in um, who had the power to nominate the city manager, right? Uh, which uh, which actually diluted the mayoral powers in a sense because it gave all council members that uh, that ability. The one that passed was um, the giving the council the power to nominate the city manager, uh, where the one that failed was giving the mayor expanded emergency powers. Uh, these are both very specific, very narrow uh, proposals. But even in the, how the vote came out in this, I think what it really showed was uh, at least the members of the Charter Review Commission still very much hold on to the idea that decentralized power is the preferred form of government uh, that, uh, you know, Putting uh, putting trust in a collective rather than in a sole individual is uh, where we prefer. You know, th- this was also something I was going to touch on uh, that the city council and mayor jointly appoint a city manager as opposed to just the mayor. Why did the commission feel this is important? Is this kind of getting at what you're saying in terms of diluting power or maybe decentralizing things so it's not just one person? I think that played out in a lot of different ways. I don't know if those words you put came out exactly, right? But the conversation around uh, mayoral powers really centered on the idea of do we trust one person to have the power to fire department heads? Do we trust one person to uh, carry out emergency responsibilities? Do we trust one person to nominate a position as important as a city manager? And what's interesting about all of this is, um, in a sense, we do already operate under a, uh, a system that puts a lot of power in one person, right? Because the city manager is the one who has a lot of power and authority, though they do report back to the council. Um, that said, the person that the community is most familiar with being the mayor um, you know, I think the case was not made that we needed to imbue that kind of power to into one elected individual. Um, even when we got to that point where we were discussing, do we want to give one elected individual that much power? Uh, a lot of the concerns were whether or not those powers would be used in a way that would be political, right? Whether the politicization of these powers was something that we wanted to risk. Um, whereas there was a lot of faith, um, or maybe not a lot, but some a bit more faith in having an unelected official um, take on uh, the responsibilities, uh, for example, the emergency powers. Every time you come to Gilroy Gardens, you'll make memories to last a lifetime. So make the most of this precious time when your kids are young and purchase value memberships so the whole family can enjoy unlimited regular season visits through November 20th. If you buy now, everyone pays the kids' price of just $55. That's the very best price of the year, and it won't last long. Buy now at gilroygardens.org and come play at this magical place where fun grows on trees. Hi, this is Lynn Balistrieri, San Jose Spotlight's Development Director. Like all our coverage, the Podlight is made possible by you, community members who understand the need for an unbiased, independent news source. Your fully tax-deductible gift will go directly to support our nonprofit newsroom. We hope that you will consider making a monthly or annual donation at SanJoseSpotlight.com so that we may continue to bring you the news that matters to you. Thank you. Now, the commission also said that the cities should continue exploring uh, what's known as the Community Opportunity to Purchase Act, uh, or COPA. Uh, this allows nonprofits' first right to purchase certain properties on the market to prevent displacement of renters. Now, the Charter Review Commission didn't make an outright recommendation to move forward with COPA, just that the city should continue exploring it. Uh, How can this measure stop displacement, and what do its opponents say? 
if I may actually, uh, do you, hope you don't mind, uh, um, CJ and, and Fred. Um, so this is actually also relevant to the Housing Commission. And so this is where I, I kind of want to jump in a bit here. Um, the recommendation was to continue exploring it because at the time uh, the meetings to have were happening, there was no official proposal for COPA yet. And so I think we, the city was still in a place to try to cre- create the proposal, right? Um, but the idea behind COPA is simple, right? Which is uh, in this wildly expensive housing market, Right. If you have a person who owns a home uh, you know, or apartment or, or, or condos or whatnot, and they're renting it out, that if they're ready to sell, we provide the right of first refusal, we right of first refusal or right of first purchase to a registered or an eligible nonprofit uh, with the theory being like, hey, the trans- we're not setting the price of the transaction. We're not uh, trying to ch- alter anything about the transaction. All we're saying is give these qualified non- uh, nonprofits the first bite of the apple to try to purchase it and utilize that property in a way that it helps us ad- ad- uh, preserve and address the affordable housing crisis. Uh, so that theory is if we provide, if we get this um, property into the hands of an entity that whose goal is to provide or preserve affordable housing, then we're working directly to address the problem. Opponents have actually said that this is uh, an interference into market transactions. It doesn't address affordable housing because it limits the ability for developers to take maybe what was for you a fourplex and turn it into a bigger apartment complex. But uh, we actually, I don't know if we've actually seen that happen enough to say that this is a major in, in, um, interference into the transaction itself. Uh, to be honest, I mean, if you look at SB9, right, and just and, and what people thought SB9, the impact of SB9 and what it was going to be, we haven't seen that at all, right? Um, so uh, I think right now there's actually a, a lot of opposition to COPA, despite the fact that we don't actually have a proposal out yet uh, from folks who are very involved in real estate uh, transactions. Um, and, uh, and I'm not exactly, and I can tell you that I don't necessarily see the reason for that, but it's there, and I think at some point it will be uh, brought to light, and, and uh, more of this discussion will happen when we get further along in the development of COPA. I think the commission's concern was the issue around homelessness and the affordability of housing. <clears throat> and could the city's governance structure, the charter, look at that in terms of could there be things added to the charter to strengthen <clears throat> the insistence that the council and the mayor take a very serious and measured data-driven look at the issues around housing and the rising um, challenges around homelessness. I think that was the intent behind looking at the question. And as um, Mr. Tran said, there was a lot of challenge around, could COPA be the, the vehicle, but we were at a different time frame in terms of where they were. I do think one of the other challenges with COPA, and if we look at other communities that have these, um, again, there hasn't been a lot of take up on it, um, the challenge is, of course, going to be that how can nonprofits raise the dollars to make these big purchases? So the financing structure of COPA is still the challenge. I think that um, will will always be there and it doesn't change the market value of costs. So therefore, we are going to really need to look at other entities like the state and federal government to be able to help with if COPA is going to be a success, we've got to find out the financing structure to it. However, if we start able to do that and we start moving um, housing units, you know, as a good percentage of our market or the inventory into the hands of the nonprofits who are mission driven to maintain affordable housing and affordable housing standards, then COPA and those kinds of measures could have a direct impact on the affordability question and the ability to sustain affordable housing in a community where that's a huge challenge. So 
I think that any tool that addressed these issues of housing affordability and homelessness and said, we can't really think of some way to put it into the charter, but we don't want to lose its import and our message to council, which is um, as we as a representative group in the community, we really strongly believe um, that that's really important. And also, too, I just, just want to jump in real quickly. Um, the COPA recommendation actually came out of the uh, Police Municipal Law Accountability and Inclusion Subcommittee, which was chaired by Magnolia Siegel, uh, who unfortunately is not able to join us today. But uh, they did a lot of work around police accountability, around climate change. Uh, and these are things, too, that uh, we would hope to see some progress on. Now, final question here. Uh, one of the lesser talked about recommendations being proposed is to establish future charter review commissions to continue the work you did last year. I think this is something all three of you can speak to. Why do you feel it's important to keep this commission going? Um, this was discussed in, within my subcommittee, and we just thought, you know, overall, just being part of this process, it was a lot. And it was a lot because the charter hasn't been looked at in over, I want to say, 30 years. Um, so making sure that we implement something that is more regular would make feel, make folks feel less overwhelmed when it is time to review it and make sure that our charter is, is heading the right way that our city's heading, right? Um, so, so that's why we recommended that to have a regular review of... Um, the Charter Commission. And then that way, you know, the city would know to prepare for it and to plan ahead um, and to do recruitment. And there would be more time for study sessions than to learn, because that's what we really wanted too. while we were doing this process is more time for us to learn. Because the charter just covers so much. Um, so, so making sure that the next charter review commission is prepared and and has the knowledge and resources to be able to accomplish what they need to. I I would add just two parts. One is that um, the charter has not been reviewed by a commission since 1985. It's been changed by the council many times since then. But the better, I think, method of having a community group come together to examine, investigate, and study the charter I think is a much more preferred, again, better better representation of the community, really to kind of digging, digging in deep, as opposed to our professional staff of, our, of the city who look at it very differently than perhaps a representative community group would. So I think the idea that the commission was proposing is really that a commission be established to look at these issues, which I think is a big differential. I think the second part, though, too, is that not only is it somewhat of a part of our thinking and planning, but it would also coincide with the redistricting uh, commission, which is already set in stone every 10 years. And so having it as a precursor to and, and get integrated with the redistricting commission's work, I think would make more sense from a, if we want to change council district numbers or whatever, that the redistricting committee could do that work, having had the charter review kind of in place beforehand. I also think that we spent an entire year uh, in a pretty intense methodology that my goal was to have since we hadn't met since a commission had met since 1985, that we have a real document that is a comprehensive document that had study sessions in it with the documentation for it so that the records that we produced would go forward to a next commission to really see where we had 
worked and what we had done and what's the thought that came behind our recommendations. It was not just 23 opinions of what they thought we should do. Um, they were really taking the time to study the questions and then make recommendations. And so in my mind, a two-year period makes more sense. It should not be an ongoing commission because I think that then becomes part of the regular system. I like the ad hoc nature of it. Um, but it would, if it was a two-year process, you could study a lot longer and then move to recommendations, coming up with a, a timeline that I think make more sense. And if you did it every 10 years, on the eighth year, starting it for those two years, I think from a timing perspective, at least my experience as chair, is that it would have been a, a lot more space to breathe, uh, less, less intensity in terms of deadlines and, and pushing forward. And I think we could have had, it. Would, I think in the future, we'll make it a much more, um, again, a continue to be a thoughtful process that really gives the council um, a lot of depth in the recommendations rather than just um, taking a poll and kind of moving it forward. I really am um, very uh, respectful of all the commissioners, but really grateful to them for their incredible commitment to the city in terms of the recommendations. We actually did put a lot to, to consider thought into, I guess, the timing of it. And I do agree very much with uh, with, with Chair Ferrer uh, we, that, um, you know, having this be separated from the council, right, and having uh, the input of, of residents um, into the process, uh, it allows perspective. Uh, it, it brings in more perspective. I mean, I can go back to the PMLI subcommittee uh, where uh, Chair Siegel actually put in a lot of effort to make sure that any ideas uh, or anything that we got brought up would be evaluated and discussed and considered. Um, you know, in, in, uh, and she, I mean, a lot of the research they put into police oversight, for example, with over 100 citations, that's one of the things that um, there was a ton of effort on. The process, creating a process that allows for uh, resident input into the, like the, the skeleton or the key document that governs how San Jose operates, yeah, it completely uh, is a very appropriate and a very good thing to do. That's it for this episode of The Podlight, a podcast produced by San Jose Spotlight, the city's first nonprofit news organization dedicated to independent reporting. I'm editor Nick Preciado. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.